0: Welcome to the Gaggle, an AZ Central podcast where we chat with reporters, experts, and special guests to keep you fully informed on the state's political news. I'm your host, Ron Hansen, a national political reporter for the Arizona Republic.
1: And I'm Yvonne Winget Sanchez, also a national political reporter for the Republic. In today's episode, we're talking about the 2020 election and how COVID-19 is impacting it.
0: We'll break down how the campaign season has essentially halted during the pandemic. We'll also give an inside look at how candidates are shifting their messaging during this time of crisis.
1: The coronavirus pandemic is changing the 2020 election season. In any other presidential election year, you see people knocking on doors, holding rallies, headlining high dollar fundraisers all over town and gathering loads and loads of signatures for ballot measures.
0: Of course, right now, we're not seeing any of those things because of COVID-19. Campaigns and candidates have suspended many of their events. They had planned for months ahead of time and really haven't put a date on when things will return to normal. So let's talk about what it all means. So, Yvonne, the biggest race, of course, this year is the presidential race, which has also been affected by all of this. Give us a sense of what this has meant for the president's campaign so far.
1: Sure. I mean, really, the biggest moment in the presidential campaign for Arizonans came sometime in late February. And we all remember the big um, rally that President Trump had at Uh, the Veterans Coliseum. It was a packed house. For 90 minutes, he delivered his, you know, re-election speech, his stump speech that we've all come to know and really be familiar with. Now you have a president who is standing up for America, and we are standing up for the people of Arizona. Arizona hasn't really seen anything since then, at least obviously out in public. The Trump campaign, like a lot of these other campaigns, have really had to drastically change how they're operating, how they're getting out of the vote. Um, And they've really, like a lot of people, taken this thing virtual almost overnight. So no longer are you seeing these canvassers wearing red shirts and Make America Great Again hats hit the neighborhoods up in Anthem or out in the East Valley or on the West Side. I mean, these guys have turned like we have their bedrooms, their dens, Uh, their patios into kind of virtual uh, regional offices for President Trump. I talked with Samantha Zager, and she's the Trump re-election regional uh, coordinator here in Arizona, and she talked a lot about how the operation has essentially gone virtual overnight. This allows our volunteers to now take this into their own homes and it empowers them to make the calls from their own homes, um, which we've seen a great response to that. And so it doesn't really change the end goal. You're still ultimately you know, contacting folks and trying to get them to turn out to vote for the president and Republicans up and down the ballot. Sam also talked about how Democrats compared to Republicans are lagging behind with their virtual campaigning. Um, You're really not seeing the level of Turner on engagement in this digital universe as you are with Republicans, um, and I think part of that goes back to you know Democrats are a lot more focused on the freaking border and the clipboard. She also had some criticism of the Democratic nominee in waiting, Joe Biden. She said, "Look, it took that guy four days to set up a camera in his basement," and the point that she was really trying to make was the Trump campaign has had quite a bit of advantages uh, when it comes to the technological operation that they had already built even before the pandemic.
0: Okay. So now let's talk about the Democratic side. And this is a little different anyway, just because, well, the nomination hadn't really been clinched until just Recently, with Bernie Sanders still in the race, but not able to see any plausible path forward, it seemed, with delegates. So the dynamics here were a little strange. And of course, we all know that the debate that was supposed to happen in Phoenix uh, sort of went kablooey and was one of the early casualties of COVID-19. What's happening now that they've had some time and as Joe Biden really shifts gears into being the presumptive nominee, uh, how is his campaign uh, adjusting?
1: So we've seen a little bit of Biden here and there. Um, He has come out a couple of times to criticize President Trump's response and approach to combating uh, the, the pandemic. He obviously has had some quite a bit of criticism to to that approach.
0: So let's be clear. The coronavirus isn't Donald Trump's fault, but the fact that Americans has America has more cases than any country in the world is his responsibility. New reporting over the weekend showed that he turned a blind eye to China's mistakes at a critical moment.
1: But aside from a new podcast that he has called, Here's the Deal, which is a riff off of uh, a common phrase that he uses, we're not really seeing him around as much. And Ron, I know you and I have had this conversation a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. I think Democrats are really looking for him to step up his, you know, criticism of the Trump campaign or start talking about some of these other issues um, that this pandemic is highlighting, the need for accessible and quality healthcare, perhaps uh, a better need for telemedicine, Um, Some of the other things that Democrats are talking about, like the need for expanded broadband uh, in rural parts of the state. That's something that our Arizona delegation has been talking about for years, especially up in the tribal areas. But you just don't see much of him. And I mean, at least here in Arizona, I haven't seen or heard from him or his campaign in weeks. Have you?
0: No, I really haven't. It's. I think part of it is just the natural disadvantage of being not the chief executive at a time of intense crisis, like what we've seen for a few weeks and now turning into months. That you know people understandably are turning to whoever the president is, and it just feels, especially with the the race on the democratic side settled, um, that. The Biden campaign has really kind of fallen into a very second or third order priority, even for people who are Democrats. So I haven't heard much from them. And clearly they've been trying to figure out how to stay somewhat in the news, uh, being mindful of the things that are most urgent in terms of public health at the moment. let's let's shift gears a bit. Um, the Senate race, uh, you've been covering that for some time. This has really upended the way that that race is being uh, contested and playing out these days. Talk about what the candidate campaigns look like today.
1: Well, they don't look like much. I have to tell you. I mean, this time, a couple of years ago when we had the last big Senate race, I mean, every day there was something It seemed you were usually racing around trying to catch up with these guys at stump speeches, rallies uh, as they volunteer for this food bank or this charity or nonprofit organization or, you know, talking to business groups or veterans groups. And this pandemic has upended everything. I mean, it's almost as though there really isn't a race.
0: Yvonne, this seems like this has had a pretty profound effect on fundraising, too. Uh, What can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, for 15 days, at least, Senator McSally said that she was going to put her fundraising operations on hold. I ended up having a conversation with her recently to kind of talk about that decision. And here's what she had to say.
0: And so I wanted to bring everything to a halt and focus these 15 days on that uh because I thought it was so important. So if any money happens to come in, you know, separately during this time that comes directly to our PO box or whatever, uh it's all going to be diverted uh from this fifteen days uh to support the Salvation Army to get relief to people immediately
1: her campaign staff has also been volunteering out at the Salvation Army um, as part of this 15 days of giving initiative that that she kicked off. And she really has been trying to lean into the advantage that she has of just being the incumbent, right? Like she just is using her office as she should and uh, the position and the perch that it affords her to connect with her constituents through halls to vote on these major um, economic stimulus packages or relief packages, as she likes to call them. Um, And what she told me is, you know, anyone who's not in the position that I'm in is sitting on the sidelines. And of course, that was a clear shot at Mark Kelly. Mark Kelly is the Democrat who is uh, running unchallenged for his party's nomination for the seat. And he's using new methods to to connect with families and to voters as well he recently kicked off uh Uh, reading time to children and families uh, as part of this kind of new virtual effort and he was in his uh, NASA space jacket with his uh, twin brother Scott Kelly and they had like a wind up about 10 minutes where they talked about how it was really the kids' responsibilities to be a part of a team just as you know when you go to space you're part of a team and everyone really kind of relies on each other to get to get through uh, that experience and he tried to compare that to the social distancing effort that's happening here. And, you know, it was a really unique way, I think, for him to, to try to connect to people.
0: Now, some of your what your training could be, think about your schoolwork as your training. So you're prepared for the future. Whatever lies ahead, you're you're ready to do that. So make sure you're doing your homework, you're studying, you're doing those things that your mom and dad wants you to do.
1: And then he, re- he read... Um, his book about a mouse that goes to space uh, along with his twin brothers. And like McSally, he has also um, been raising money for charity. He's been raising it for the Arizona food banks. You know, it remains to be seen when and how these guys end up re-engaging uh, in a more physical manner with uh, with constituents but for for now this thing is is kind of at a standstill and Ron you have been following the congressional uh, races uh, particularly in cd1 with Democrat Tom O'Halloran and um, CD two with Ann Kirkpatrick, the Democrat down in Tucson, and uh, David Schweikert, the Republican congressman in CD six. How are those candidates navigating this time?
0: You know, it's it's just the case that being an incumbent sort of is still an advantage for a lot of different reasons. Number one, because a as we mentioned earlier, just the whole idea of campaigning is sort of frozen for everybody. So the challengers aren't able to really hold any kind of significant events. The fundraising is also something that's a pretty delicate matter. Everyone's trying to finesse this issue. It just seems hard to ask people for money at a time when a lot of people are losing their jobs or at least worried about where their next dollars are coming from. So it, has done a lot, I think, to help these incumbents. Tom O'Halloran, for example, has been very active in trying to uh, make sure that he is being seen and recognized for being busy and tending to his constituents, especially uh, on the tribal areas that are so prominently a part of his district. There's been a lot of legitimate problems about trying to manage this health crisis and the economic crisis there. And... Tom has really been sort of out front in a a very prominent way, trying to make sure that that problem is recognized and dealt with. Um, It will probably help him politically, but it's also the right thing to do as just a member of Congress. You have to tend to your constituents. When you look at Ann Kirkpatrick, she's also trying to manage the flow of dollars and making sure that the shape of these kinds of um, rescue packages is, you know, going to help her constituents, and she's been concerned about just sort of the budget fallout for her district anyway.
1: We took a really close look at how uh, some of these incumbents are really leveraging the power of their constituent services uh, teams in Congress to you know, not just help people navigate this really difficult time, but to connect with the people that they represent. How could that end up helping them, you know, politically or inadvertently come election time?
0: Yeah, these are the most intimate of dealings with your constituents that happens on a regular basis. And right now it's just all intensified by this crisis. So this isn't just trying to get a bill passed or a constituent concern addressed. This is sort of crisis management. We talked to a lot of folks who were saying, I needed to uh, be able to help someone get a relative back from Peru or uh, some other part of the world. We heard from people who are literally uh, fearing for their lives, that they have health issues and they don't want to go into a hospital and they need to make sure that Medicare adjusts so that they can get in-home treatment instead. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that in many ways is bread and butter constituent affairs, But it's all just so intense right now and, you know, hats off to those folks who are working, those caseworkers who are on the front lines dealing with these issues and trying to get answers for people at a time when everybody's just overloaded with questions.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. What about the state and local races? How is this affecting them and, you know, did they even get the signatures they needed to get on the ballot?
0: Yeah, it, certainly at the congressional level, everybody got on the ballot really that we expected to see there. There was an independent challenger in, who was uh, trying to mount a campaign against Paul Gosar in his district in northwestern Arizona, but uh, she was not able to submit the signatures. And, and I honestly, her campaign had problems even before that. But the rest of the challengers really kind of were able to manage this I think one of the things that made a huge difference in this is the state's system of allowing online uh, electronic signatures. Uh, I talked to Shay Stotts; he's a Republican running against Ann Kirkpatrick in southeastern Arizona, and he made it clear that you know this was something that was an option available to him that ensured that it, they didn't have to. Uh, get a ton of signatures, they knew that all those electronic ones are people who are already sort of pre-certified as being eligible voters. So when he was collecting those signatures that way, his campaign was actually able to sort of stand down and breathe a little easier that this issue didn't turn into a drama at the finish line.
1: And this thing has really affected the ballot initiatives as well. I mean, there are six uh, Arizona ballot initiatives that are proposed. A few weeks ago, I spoke with an attorney representing some of these ballot measure groups. She noted the extraordinary difficulties they were facing. They um, are facing now an unprecedented challenge that we've never seen before, and there needs to be relief provided so that Arizonans have the right to exercise their constitutional um, opportunity to make laws. A federal judge rejected a request by a couple of ballot measure campaigns to collect petition signatures from voters online instead of having to go out and collect them in person. But the judge for the case said that the Constitution required that they collect signatures from supporters in person. That could mean that some of these groups if they didn't have the signatures before the stay-at-home orders began, could be out of luck. Uh, The group that is trying to legalize marijuana has indicated that they think they have enough signatures to make it on the November ballot, but Arizonans for Fair Elections said it may have far fewer than the roughly 237,000 or so signatures that they need to qualify. Also, another group that is uh, trying to get a healthcare care related uh, initiative on the ballot said that it was trying to assess its options for refiling its case uh, to the federal court or to a higher court to see if they can get that decision overturned. Another group known as Save Our Schools Arizona is trying to undo a law related to the expanded voucher system that is tied to the state's education system. And they got a really late start in collecting their signatures, and they almost certainly would not make the ballot. Ron, the FEC filings just came out a few days ago, and I know that this is always your favorite time of the quarter. Can you kind of give us a sense of how the pandemic affected fundraising efforts, particularly towards the end of the quarter?
0: Yeah, it's a good question, and it will take some more digging to know more definitively, but it looks like the fundraising really slowed down toward the end of the quarter, and that, of course, is the whole month of March. And you look at some of the campaigns, they've acknowledged that they had to cancel fundraising events others uh, noted that it was just a a difficult time and the reality is for a lot of these incumbents is they were pretty busy at the end of the quarter as well that's when uh, every member was really kind of uh, helping to uh, deal with the constituent caseload demands and the the very rapidly evolving uh, needs on uh, legislation to deal with all this. So I think there was a lot of distraction in addition to a lot of just logistical hurdles to raising money at the end of the quarter.
1: Did Mark Kelly outraise Martha McSally again?
0: Yeah, same uh, outcome, even though the uh, the variables were a little different this time. Mark Kelly really turned in a pretty commanding performance, an eye-popping $11 million for the quarter. Uh, the thing is, is Senator McSally did a really good job in her own right, raising over $6 million for the quarter, but she's competing against somebody who's really just sort of setting the pace nationally in many ways for what can be taken in uh, at any given quarter. So for all the ups and downs of the the quarter, from the impeachment trial to Senator McSally's uh, standoff with CNN's Manu Raju to the president's visit in Phoenix and then the pandemic, you know, everything was sort of swirling around us. But the one thing that didn't change is that Mark Kelly, once again, really kind of uh, set a brisk pace for fundraising and Senator McSally is struggling to keep up.
1: How did David Schweikert do against Harold Tippernini?
0: Yeah, it's sort of the same theme here. David Schweikert has been behind in fundraising against Democrat Hero Tipperneny for the entirety of that race now for a year and the pandemic and just all the other things that were in play in this quarter didn't really change that. She's really kind of opened up a huge lead on him financially. She now has one point two million dollars in cash at the end of the quarter. He has two hundred thousand. So he continues to go backward in terms of being able to compete financially against her. He is uh, really the only incumbent in our House delegation who is seeing themselves consistently outraised by their opponents.
1: What was the biggest surprise?
0: You know, the one that stood out to me was Andy Biggs. He's the Republican who represents the district in the Mesa, Chandler area, and Andy Biggs is not normally a very good fundraiser, if if we can be very blunt about it, and he doesn't have to be. He occupies a very safely conservative district and doesn't need to have a whole lot of funds to beat back what has been a very, uh, you know, minimal, lightly funded Democratic opponent uh, in the past. What's different this time is that in this quarter he raised two hundred and forty-six thousand dollars, which is you know a pretty good sum. Uh, for anybody, really, and he did it with a significant amount of small-dollar donors, which is also sort of speaking to a a breadth and width of campaign finance appeal that is uh, not something I wouldn't have expected for him. It's worth noting that Andy Biggs is, of course, one of the president's most outspoken supporters, and he is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. So he's really sort of developing this national persona And it looks like it may start to show up in his campaign finance reports. And I think that's what we got a a glimpse of this time.
1: Since this pandemic began, we essentially have been consumed with um, punditry from all sides about whether the Trump administration has done enough and is doing enough to combat this. Uh, clearly, we were pretty unprepared on a number of different fronts, but do you see other issues coming back to the forefront as we move closer to the election, like the economy or healthcare or you know some of these other issues that we've long talked about?
0: Yeah, it seems like a safe bet that people are going to be looking at the economy a lot more in closely and intensely than what they had before. It had been just sort of this um, thing that we all understood, oh, the economy is doing fine or great, depending on who you were. Today, obviously, we're talking about numbers that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And the question I think that we're all wrestling with right now is, is this temporary until we get past the critical stages of the coronavirus? Or is this something that's going to have a long tail with it economically? That's a lot of anxiety, and it starts to focus people on who they think is best suited to manage the economic crisis that's going to go on well after the coronavirus is sort of in the rearview mirror. So I think in that respect, it's definitely going to impact that very important issue. And the the healthcare issue is also something that I think we've all kind of had an up-close experience with this And we're asking ourselves uh, how we compare to other nations in a way that I don't think was ever on people's radar in a really important way. But hearing about how China managed this or how's Italy doing or what's happening in Great Britain, I think it naturally invites a conversation of how we compare on healthcare and just sort of basic protection of citizens in a way that really is new and who knows how that conversation turns out.
1: Well, we'll be following along and we will be helping you make sense of how it is all turning out. That's it for today, Gaggle listeners. While we still have you, please don't forget to rate and review our show and share it with a friend. If you want to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm at Yvonne Winget.
0: And I'm at Ronald J. Hansen. That's H-A-N-S-E-N.
1: Today's episode was edited and produced by Maritza Dominguez with oversight from Katie O'Connell. Thanks so much for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.